the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And we're coming at you again from quarantine, from isolation. We sure are. And my isolation has actually gotten very exciting over the last couple of days. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So as uh, some of our listeners know, if you've been listening to the podcast regularly, I am immunocompromised. So we kind of all had to separate at the very beginning of all of um, this COVID-19 reaching uh, the area that we're living in, reaching the rest of the world, basically. And so recently I've been feeling pretty under the weather and I've been having some issues with my little baby lungs that don't always work as they should. (laughs) And so it, it was recommended by my family doctor and some persuasion from my mother, who I'm super lucky to be living with right now. Shout out to my mom, Lori. Shout out to Lori. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Lori. So I actually called 811 and did the whole rigmarole, and it was actually much easier than I anticipated. It was actually a very easy, quick process, and I don't know if that's because I'm living in the south shore of Nova Scotia, not right in yeah. like Halifax, a city uh, where it's a more rural, like smaller population out here, mm-hmm. but. It all went through pretty seamlessly, and I went and I got tested, and I just got my results back this morning. I do not have COVID-19, Yay! which I didn't think I did. Yay. <laughs> but uh, it's it's always nice to be sure. So I've just got a nasty, um, like, kind of chest infection-y thing, but, uh, yeah. but not COVID, so we're all good. But uh, this is why it's yeah. important that everybody is staying in their homes and taking all of the necessary recommended precautions uh, wherever you are because this is something serious and especially for people who are elderly or who are immunocompromised this can be really serious um, if you have any other underlying health issues as well so yeah yeah Yeah. so that's why it's important that you know you're staying indoors to be a good citizen and protect the other people in your life not necessarily yourself the quicker that we just do what we're told uh the quicker that we'll have a summer i want patio (laughs) season so if i don't get uh, patio season you're telling me and it's somebody else's fault no (laughs) (laughs) so grace what are we talking about today For this episode, I think it'll be fun to do the thing that we did with the Marconi episode, which I don't tell you who we're talking about until we get into it, because I think it'll be fun. I think you'll figure it out. I feel a little bit like I missed out because last week I was, I knew exactly what was happening (laughs) and it wasn't as fun. I feel like I, as wonderful as that episode was uh, on Winnie the Pooh, I You want the anticipation. I'm ready yeah, I want to anticipate the excitement of what we're going to be talking about. And I love to surprise about. people. Like, some, my yeah, whole, so like, let's... quarantine has been, like, hiding in laundry baskets and just jumping out and scaring my mother. That's a lie. I haven't done that once, <laughs> oh, but I should. God. Mom, don't listen to this episode. <laughs> you should. <laughs> I've got plans. <laughs> okay. All right. 26-year-old Thomas Ingersoll married 17-year-old Elizabeth Dewey in Great Barrington, colonial province of Massachusetts Bay, in 1775. Thomas's family had lived in Massachusetts for five generations. 
The family was not extremely wealthy, but Thomas was a successful hat maker, which earned him enough money to marry, increase his land holdings, and expand his house as the Ingersoll family grew. Which I will point out as, like, I think something on this podcast that we make fun of a lot is that men marry women way younger than them throughout. That is a consistent trend in this podcast. But (laughs) I think by today's standards, it is a little like, okay, that's weird. But I mean, historically, men, you wouldn't be expected to marry unless you could support a family. And for a lot of men, that doesn't happen until they're at least in their mid to late 20s. So it's more of like a social expectation, especially of middle to upper class people that you would be able to support everybody. So despite the fact that he's 26 and his wife is 17, uh, we'll we'll look past that. (laughs) We'll excuse excuse that. That that being said, they had only been married seven months when their first child was born, Laura. And this might not be a math podcast, podcast. but I can do some simple (laughs) math. There might be some other reasons that they got married in 1775. <laughs> I think I think she may have already been Maybe. pregnant, Grace. Uh, you know what? <laughs> I'm counting up the months. And, we'll make uh, it a minute women mystery. So at the outbreak of the American Revolution, Thomas began spending most of his time away from his family. Given his colonial ancestry, it's not surprising that he committed himself to the American side of the uh, revolution. And he rose through military ranks uh, with the revolutionaries over the course of the war. When he eventually returned to Great Barrington, his commitment to the revolutionary cause was recognized and Thomas was made a magistrate. So no, oh, no longer good for making Thomas. hats. So following the war, the Ingersolls had three more daughters, Elizabeth, Myra, and Abigail. However, their mother, Elizabeth, passed away in 1784, and subsequently, baby Abigail, who was only a few months old, was given up for adoption. What? Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Like, if the mother passes away and you have an infant, if you're a dad, you don't have any means of taking care of the baby. Like, He's a magistrate. Get a nanny. You could get a wet nurse, I guess. But they decide oh to give God. her up for adoption. Uh, <laughs> she was okay. she was taken in by an aunt and then was given the name, uh, surname Nash. So she essentially is just okay. taken into another family, but is still part Abigail of their... Abigail Nash. Abigail right. Nash. Thomas remarried the following year to a woman named Mercy Smith. Mercy would never have any Mercy. children. I know. It's like... It, it always makes me think of Uncle Jesse in Full House. It's always like, <laughs> have mercy when he sees, like, a hot lady. <laughs> it's like... John Stamos in his prime. There's just those, like, that sect of, like, religious names that I don't think get used as much anymore. But my name kind of falls into that. Like, Grace and Mercy would be, like, I feel like the same oh, genre yeah. of name. It's just Grace yeah. had longevity and Mercy did not. So Mercy would never have any of her own children, but she was a devoted mother to her three stepdaughters. Uh, She taught the girls to read. She taught them to do needlework. However, Mercy would also pass away only four years into her marriage with Thomas of tuberculosis. So by then, their eldest daughter... Not arsenic poisoning. (laughs) He's not killing them, right? I hope not. I mean, TB is pretty common. Thomas just has a bad streak of luck. I also just want to say, I have no idea where this is going and no idea what um, you <laughs> heritage will. myth you this will. is about. Don't okay. worry. I promise you will. 
So by then, their eldest daughter was 14, and she took on many of the household responsibilities, and she cared for her younger sisters. But Thomas, not one to be shut down, remarries again just four months after Mercy's death, and he marries a woman named Sally Backus. The family adopted Sally's daughter from a previous marriage, and then Sally and Thomas would go on to have seven children together. Oh, my Lanta. (laughs) Which brings their household to 11 children total. Oh, a whopping 11. They were That's prolific. When Shay's, oh rebellion- <laughs> when Shay's Rebellion broke out in 1786, Thomas helped suppress it, and that earned him the rank of major within the American army. However, while Thomas had been a supporter of the revolutionary cause, he was increasingly offended by the continued persecution of loyalists in Massachusetts. So... I mean, if you know the American Revolution, it's the British versus the Americans. Loyalists are people loyal to the British. And then you have revolutionaries who support the American cause. And there were people who had declared themselves as loyalists but stayed in the U.S. following the American Revolution. And they continued to be persecuted under American rule. Right, right. Okay. So this offends Thomas. He doesn't like it. Additionally, he had accumulated quite a bit of debt following the American Revolution, and with the continued depressed economic conditions of the new country, it was unlikely he would reach his former level of prosperity if he kept the family in Massachusetts. Therefore, in 1793, Thomas met with a Mohawk leader named Joseph Brandt in New York City. Brandt offered to show Thomas the best lands for settlement in Upper Canada, where the Crown was encouraging development. And then after traveling to Upper Canada with some associates and petitioning to the lieutenant governor for a land grant, the group received 66,000 acres in the Thames Valley on the condition that they would bring at least 40 families with them. So conditional land grabs were pretty common when you're trying to settle big swaths of land because it's like, I can't give you 66,000 acres, but I'll give it to you as long as you bring other people with you. Okay. So that's the way you like build up towns and stuff. So the Ingersoll family moves to Upper Canada in 1795. Thomas opened a tavern in Queenston, and by 1796, the family had built a log cabin to live in. However, Thomas and other late loyalists, so those are people who were like originally with the revolutionaries, but then they were like, "Eh, it's actually really hard to live in a new country. Let's just go back to the British. Loyalists who had left the United States are kind of offended by them. It's like, oh, you're, now you see how great Britain Fair. is. Yeah. Yeah. So they That's face... That's reasonable. So yeah, like Thomas and other late loyalists face persecution in loyalist communities. So the tavern isn't successful in the long run. Also, his land grant ends up being canceled because he wasn't able to fulfill the contract. So he wasn't able to bring 40 families with him. So Thomas subsequently moved his family to Credit River, which is just outside modern-day Toronto. Um, And there he runs a successful inn for the rest of his life. After his death in 1812, Sally ran the inn until her death in 1833. Their eldest daughter, however, Laura, would not move with the family because she met a man named James Secord. Oh! (laughs) Here we are! (laughs) So Secord was a we descendant. We made it, everybody. Made it. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I think I know what this episode is about. Can I take a guess? Absolutely. Can I buy a vowel? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Just kidding. I think this is about Laura Secord. Yeah, Laura Secord. Do you know, do you remember that Heritage Minute? I do, yeah. Her running, 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 running. Literally running, running some more. And then, and then falling down and then being like, take me to your leader. <laughs> take me to Fitzgibbons. Oh, yeah, that's what she says. Yeah. Um, it is just her yeah. running in the woods and falling down a lot. And just like, and ugh, a God, really ugh. nice voiceover. Is there? I don't remember this yeah. voiceover. As she's running, she's talking about what she had to do. Oh, and then at the end, too, the woman is like, it's like, Laura Secord brought the information yeah. about the American attack to Fitzgibbons. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. I will say that that Heritage Minute is probably the most accurate in the sense of, like, that's what she did. Like, we'll get into she it, just obviously. Ran. But, like, so many of them, like, you talk about the basketball one, and you're like, that's not quite what the first game of basketball was like. She she did just run. That, <laughs> that's what she did. But we'll get all into that. I'm excited. So James Secord was the descendant of Protestant Huguenots who had fled persecution in France and then moved to New York in 1688. So his family okay, so, is also a pretty old like descendant of colonials. But what are Huguenots? They're a sect of Protestant religion. And in France, it's a very strong Catholic country. So Mm -hmm. during the 1600s, they're really severely persecuted by, uh, I believe, the government and just, like, people. And so, like, thousands of Huguenots get killed in France. But a lot of them flee the country entirely. So it's just more so, like, that's why his family wound up in the New World. Laura met James in Queenston. And the two married in June of 1797. So James and Laura Secord moved to St. David's, which today is near Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario. And between 1799 and 1810, the couple would have five children. Uh, Their names were Mary, Charlotte, Harriet, Charles, and Apollonia. Apollonia? Yeah, I love it. It's just like normal name, normal name, normal name, weird name. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Apollonia's a girl, I'm going to assume. Yes, so four daughters and a son. Okay. So that brings us to the War of 1812. Do you know a lot about, do you know anything about the War of 1812? Did they all kind of blend together, Grace? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not you. I mean, the War of 1812 is the war that, like, people know one thing about, and it's when it started. Like 1812. Correct. You nailed it. (laughs) Oh, I know something. (laughs) I mean, I didn't even really know that much about it. But yeah, the War of 1812 is an armed conflict between the United States and the British Empire. Sometimes it's viewed more as a minor theater of the Napoleonic Wars. So the Napoleonic Wars are happening in Europe. And this is kind of viewed as like a small theater of that. The British also wanted to set up an indigenous state in the Midwest in order to maintain their influence over the region. So almost have like a puppet state in that area through indigenous tribes. And that's why 10,000 indigenous men fought on the side of the British, which is represented in the Heritage Minute where she stumbles upon the indigenous camp and they take her to the British Captain Fitzgibbons. Since Canada was a British colony, Canadians were also... British allies. I mean, it's it's strong to say that Canadians were there. They're really British subjects. But the two Canadas, Upper and Lower Canada, will fight in this conflict as well. The Americans objected to the British Empire restricting their trade and snatching their sailors to serve on British ships, which is a process called pressing. So do you know like press gangs and stuff? 
yeah, so the British are doing that to the Americans, and the Americans are upset about it. They were also eager to prove their independence from the British Empire once and for all. So this is like America's chance to be like, we're better than you, or like, we don't need you as to be our like mother country, we can take care of ourselves. Both sides suffered really heavy casualties, and even the White House was burned down in 1814. So, oh, okay, yes, yeah. All right. So that's part this of the war. This is coming back to me. Okay, <laughs> I feel like that's the other thing people know is like Canada Canadians managed to burn down the White House. <laughs> yeah, which we're very nobody proud of. liked that. Yeah, but nobody <laughs> nobody in America liked that very much. Uh, yeah, not fans. The British were quite defensive in the beginning since they concentrated their military efforts on the Napoleonic Wars, uh, but after their victory over France in 1814, they started to fight uh, the Americans more aggressively. American national pride was boosted by victories at the Battle of Baltimore in 1814 and the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. Thanks to those victories, the Americans started to call the, this war uh, the Second War for Independence. Um, the Treaty of Ghent was finally signed on December 24th, 1814, and it established a, the status quo antebellum, which means that nobody lost or gained any territory during the war. The war officially ended on February 17th, 1815. So ultimately, the outcome of the war is nothing. Like, nobody gains anything. No one loses anything. It's just a bunch of people got injured and hurt. Um, and the White House. And the White House burns down. Burned to the ground. Those would be the major events. Uh, but that's significant to our story because James Secord served in the first Lincoln militia when the War of 1812 broke out. So during the Battle of Queenston Heights in October of 1812, James was severely wounded in the leg and the shoulder, and Laura rushed to be by his side. There are some accounts that she found James surrounded by American soldiers at gunpoint and she like offered her life instead of his. Uh, but Dear God. this is probably untrue. <laughs> or at least it was like highly embellished over time, which is something that we're going to encounter as a problem is that people highly embellish the life of Laura Secord. <laughs> Ultimately, the Secords arrived home and they found that in Laura's absence, their house had been looted. So James and Laura are both away from the home and someone comes and like raids their store and their house. That That's would... not nice. I know. Yeah. It's like it's really tough for people along the border, especially like they live in pretty like Niagara on the lake is pretty southern in Canada. And so if you're living near American bases or living near American towns, they'll just like raid your house. That winter, Laura nursed her wounded husband back to health. In the spring, the American forces launched an attack on the Niagara River and captured Fort George. The whole Niagara area, therefore, fell under American control. So now they live in, like, an American-controlled zone. Not good. Not great. All military-aged men were imprisoned, but because of his injuries, James was allowed to be left at home. So had he been healthy, they would have, actually, they would have imprisoned him and taken him away. Um, but because his shoulder and leg are still injured, he gets to stay home. The Secords were forced to billet several American soldiers in the June of 1813. So now they why have Why would that happen? But why would that happen? Why would they billet soldiers? It, it's mostly Yeah, why would like, they have to? Like, why would they be required to? It's basically like the American forces showing up and saying, you have to, like, house these people. 
And if you do anything to them, we'll, like, take your home and we'll take your property. And are they, like, fugitives? Like, are they using this as, like, a place to keep, like, dangerous criminals or... No, they're just like American troops. I think it's just cheaper for them to put them up in these homes than to set up tents right, or set up right. something else okay. that, you know, if you're not staying in like a warm, dry house, you're probably going to be more likely to come down with some kind of encampment illness, like diphtheria or something. So this is a way to keep soldiers healthy, and it's way cheaper than building any kind of permanent barracks for them. So on the evening of June 21st, 1813, Laura heard of plans for a surprise American attack uh, on Lieutenant James Fitzgibbon's British troops at Beaver Dams. It's unclear how Laura came across this information. Traditionally, it is recounted that she overheard a conversation among the soldiers that the sea cords were billeting. So the soldiers that are living in their house are talking about the attack, and that's how she finds out about it. That's also because the that's way... what happens. Yeah, that's what happens in the minute. Yeah, exactly. So she like hears them in the like in the dining room or something, and they're talking about the attack. There's also a theory that. Through her husband's military connections, he finds out about it, and then he tells Laura. Um, Okay. So that's another possible way that she would have found out, but regardless of how she came to find out, she knew that her husband would be too unwell to deliver this intel to Fitzgibbons and warn him. So early the next morning, she set out to deliver the message herself. So she knows this information has to get to the British but her husband is too sick to do it or too injured. So she's like, I have to go do it. Now, does she like know where the British are right now? Does she have a general idea of where their like camps are located? So she knows that they're at Beaver Dams. I don't know how specific of a location that is. And it also seems that she knows the outpost is 20 kilometers away. As long as she sticks to direct roads, but Laura was scared that she would encounter American guards if she follows the roads. So she decided to take a less direct route through the woods. So it seems like she knows vaguely where she has to go. And this less direct route was 32 kilometers. As opposed to the 20? As opposed to 20 if she stuck on the roads. And also it's 32 kilometers through the woods versus like 20 kilometers on a road. So she set out for St. David's first, um, and when she arrives in St. David's, she was joined by her niece, Elizabeth, and then the two continued on to Shipman's Corner, which is now St. Catharines, Ontario. So for part of the way, her niece accompanies her, but then her niece becomes exhausted, and so Laura continued on alone, which is like, come on, Elizabeth. It's like, we got to go save the British, and you're going to get tired like a third of the way through. (laughs) That reminds me of another heritage moment, um, the midwife one. Oh my gosh, that girl is so whiny. <laughs> Where they're walking through the snow and she's like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And the, the midwife is like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Basically, she's just like, for the love of all that is holy, get up <laughs> off your butt and follow Help me. me. <laughs> We gotta deliver a freaking baby. (laughs) Your mom's not gonna die if you just shut up and help me. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, but because that's not, but that's not in the minute. In the Heritage Minute, Laura Secord does not have her niece with her. Okay. No, Elizabeth doesn't deserve to be commemorated in the Heritage Minute. She didn't do anything. No. (laughs) She was just a buddy for a minute. (laughs) She was a buddy for like two seconds. She's like, 
oh, wait, this is going to be hard. <laughs> I don't want to help. It's like when you agree to help a friend and then you're like, oh, yeah. wait, I'm actually committing to something. It's like, uh, actually, I'm not feeling great. Effort? Uh, <laughs> mm. It's not my strong suit. Um. <laughs> okay, so Elizabeth, so she's gone. Elizabeth taps out. Okay, Laura's still going. And Laura's still going. And she, at this point, she's increasingly uncertain of the direction she needs to go. And so what she decides to do is find the 12-mile creek, and she follows that through the woods and fields. By okay. evening fall, she had crossed the creek on a fallen tree and then came unexpectedly upon a Mohawk camp. So Laura was initially frightened. However, she explained her mission to the Mohawks, who were allied with Fitzgibbons and the rest of the British. And the Mohawks took her the rest of the way to Fitzgibbons and to his headquarters at the DeCue House. She had arrived on time, and two days later, on June 24th, 1813, an American force under the command of Colonel Charles Borstler was ambushed near Beaver Dams by some 400 Mohawk troops led by Dominique Ducharme and William Johnson Kerr. Fitzgibbons then persuaded Borstler to surrender with 462 men to his own 50 men. So, I mean, the Americans, like, are out outnumbering them significantly, but because of Laura's information, she, the British are able to set up in a strategic way and get the Americans to surrender. In his report of the battle, Fitzgibbon only stated that he received information about the threat and didn't mention Laura at all. It is possible that this was done to protect the Secord family, seeing how they were living in an American-controlled zone at this point. So, or he's just a jerk trying to take all the glory for himself. <laughs> I mean, I can see where he's like coming from in the sense that if that dispatch gets intercepted and they find out that the Sea Cords had given up American soldiers, especially if they had been billeting American soldiers and had found out the information from those American soldiers, then I can't imagine that the Sea Cords would fare well in that situation. But yeah, it could also be that Fitzgibbon is just like, Ugh. I don't care. <laughs> that being said, later in 1827, so that's over that's like almost 15 years later, Fitzgibbon did confirm that Laura had brought him the information on the 22nd of June 1813. He stated, I do certify that on the 22nd day of June, 1813, Mrs. Secord came to me at Beaver Dams after sunset and informed me that her husband had learned from an American officer the preceding night that a detachment of, Ameri of the American army in Fort George would be sent out on the following morning for the purpose of surprising and capturing a detachment of the 49th Regiment. Colonel Borstler, their commander, in a conversation with me, confirmed fully the information communicated to me by Mrs. Secord. So I guess afterwards he was speaking with the American colonel and he was just like, yeah, she nailed it. Like she knew exactly what she was talking about. <laughs> we, uh, we really got got this time, guys. <laughs> Secord at the time did not write of her walk in detail. So the details of it will always be questioned. So there's no first-hand account from the time that she actually walked. So there's a lot of questions about what actually happened that day. Um, there's little doubt that Did it she happened. find a horse? And did the horse take her the rest of the way? <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know. She didn't walk a step. It was just the horse. 
So there's little doubt that the walk actually happened, but it is unclear how much the British knew in advance. So there are people that come out afterwards, like Ducharme, who is leading the Mohawk troops. He doesn't make any mention of Secord in his reports. However, a Mohawk chief by the name of John Norton wrote in his diary that a loyal inhabitant who brought information that the enemy intended to attack. Um, so he writes about someone, but he doesn't specifically say it's Laura. So Laura did later write two accounts of what happened. So the first was in 1853, so that's 40 years after the walk, and the second was in 1861. Neither contains specific information like times of day or dates, because you probably forget those things over time. So they can't corroborate her accounts with military accounts. Her account also slightly changed over time. But again, that's just kind of like how human memory works is you just kind of forget things. So, for example, it was noted by historian Pierre Burton that she she told Fitzgibbons that her husband had learned about the information from an American officer. But then years later, she recounted to her granddaughter that she personally had overheard the plans from the American soldiers that were being billeted in their home. So... So we're just unsure. So we're just, yeah, we're unsure on specifics. The story was also embellished by later historians and authors as the story began to gain popularity. For example, William Coffin added details like Laura brought a cow with her as an excuse for why she would be leaving her home. Okay. (laughs) He's like, well, if the Americans found her, she'd need an excuse. She must have brought a cow. But like, that's totally just a fabrication. (laughs) I'm now picturing her riding this cow. Her cow is a scapegoat. It's like a scape cow. (laughs) Furthermore, there is also a wave of historians who just try to discredit Laura entirely. So W. Stuart Wallace published a book called The Story of Laura Secord, a study in historical evidence that came out in 1932. And it concluded that her story was almost entirely a myth and she played no significant role in the outcome of the Battle of Beaver Dams. So you, What a boob. Yeah, it's like there was like historians who were like, I, we got to embellish this story so much because we don't have any significant details. And then you have this huge retaliation by other historians who are like, it's totally a lie. Everything you know is wrong. There are other historians in the 1920s who wrote that it wasn't Laura who brought the information to Fitzgibbons. It was Mohawk scouts. So the Mohawk scouts, like they already knew everything. And so when Laura showed up, she was just confirming accounts that they already had. So by the 1960s and 70s, I mean, like the story gets so embellished and changed over time um, that historians begin to try and restore some of her reputation. So historians like George Ingram and Ruth McKenzie, they started to try and debunk Laura's story. And they believed that the accounts that people were saying that you know, like she contributed nothing to the outcome of beaver dams and things like that. They were like, okay, they took it way too far. Like the evidence isn't supporting that. It's just like historians essentially being like crotchety and being like, there are no heroes. (laughs) (laughs) Everything you want to be true is not real. So ultimately there are parts of her story that we can never verify. Um, Right. All we can do like, is like much of history, because guess what? She's dead. Everyone <laughs> everybody's talking dead. about is dead. Do you want to ask Laura? Psych, you can't. She's dead. 
So really, the most reliable sources we have are Fitzgibbon's two accounts, and they both assert that she informed him of the attack, and in his own words, he says, in quote, in consequence of this information, end quote, he was able to stop the Americans. So he credits her. And ultimately, I think that's the best representation. And I find it really, I find her really interesting because outside of this one heroic thing that she did, which I'm not trying to undermine in any way, she had a very normal life. Like, it's not okay, like she's... so I gotta ask, <laughs> did she make chocolate? <laughs> so I'll, we'll get into that. Uh, and why most Canadians know Laura Secord as a chocolate and not a person. Um, a chocolatier. Yeah, which, I mean, like, there is a reason. But from a social history standpoint, there's so few people that you would consider normal people. Like, I think Laura, you could pretty easily say, is like a normal person. She did one really amazing thing, and then the rest of her life is pretty standard. You'd get so few people like that who get commemorated so thoroughly so she's actually a really great window into what life was like for a middle-class woman in early colonial Canada like if anything I think that's what's really fascinating about her not so much like this one particular event that she contributed to so as per usual with this podcast stuff gets worse and Laura's life was not great following the war of 1812 Okay, I'm ready. Hit me with it. <laughs> Prepare yourself. Did she go into a life? Did she go into a life of prostitution? Did she lay miss herself and <laughs> chop off all her hair? Uh, not quite. I mean, okay. Maybe that's a great like mindset to go in with every episode, though, because then you might walk away like, oh, things aren't so bad. <laughs> just imagine. It's that- just what I assume is gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, every person in this podcast winds up lay missing themselves. And like, but if you think about it that way, you know, it's not, it's not so bad. <laughs> Did we just make Lee Miz a verb? <laughs> yeah, I think we should from now on. <laughs> Officially. Over. It's like, you know what? I think I'm just going to drop out of school and like Miz myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. That's excellent. We're going to get a shirt with that on it. If this pandemic keeps going, I'm going to blame Miz myself. <laughs> uh, Okay. So after the war, the Secord store was in ruins and the family was impoverished. All they had to support themselves was James's small war pension and the rent they collected from 200 acres of land. Uh, that being said, the Secords did have two more daughters. So they had Laura Ann and Hannah, which I feel like is not a great time to add to your family. I don't think so. I don't think so. They just couldn't keep it in their pants, could they? <laughs> nope. Uh, their eldest daughter did get married in 1816 and she moved to oh, Ireland. That's good. I mean, that's, yeah, but it doesn't really pan out because her husband dies too. Oh man. So but did she stay in Ireland? No, she comes back. So she comes back. Her, I was just going to say, she's no longer a burden to the family, but here she is <laughs> coming no, back. Mary trotting back in. It's like, Hey guys, <laughs> what you doing? Miss me? <laughs> So James was still unable to work given his injuries from the War of 1812. So he petitioned for some kind of employment. So he's like, hey, I ruined my leg and my shoulder fighting for you during the war. Can you at least give me a job? And Lieutenant Governor is like, no, <laughs> not at all. All right. However, your, what wife, a guy. your wife, Laura, might have some work for her. So she did become a prostitute. <laughs> 
for not, the lieutenant governor. Uh, not quite. Uh, so I did not have sexual <laughs> relations with that woman. That's what he said. Except I totally did. Want to hear me play saxophone? I am now just going to forever. It's Bill Clinton. From now on, the lieutenant governor is just Bill Clinton. <laughs> he just automatically gets Bill Clinton's voice. <laughs> um, so she wasn't lamezing herself. They were going to open a monument called Brock's Monument, which is still uh, in existence. Like, you can still visit it. Um, and it's a monument. In to- Niagara? Is this in Niagara? Yeah. So it's like, I think it's either in St. Catharines or it's in Niagara on the lake. Okay. But it's a monument to the War of 1812. And the idea was like, after it was constructed, it would need a caretaker. And so the lieutenant governor is like, Laura could be a great caretaker for the monument. A caretaker. I'm using air quotes for everyone who can't <laughs> see gonna me. She's going to take care of the monument. She's going to take good care. <laughs> I don't like this. Poor Laura. (laughs) Poor Laura. So Laura initially turns down the offer, but then she's like, I got nothing else. I got to do it. I got to be a monument caretaker. (laughs) So she does it. So she does. However, when it opened in 1831, Laura learned that the keys to the monument and the job had just been given to another woman. What? Yeah, so there was a woman. Why? So she was a widow of one of the monument committee members, and they were just Ugh. like, we got to take care of this widow. You can have the job. And Laura petitioned to get the job back, but she good never got her, it. Good for her, though. Laura was That's like, like, Laura was her, like what the fuck? You said I was, I didn't want to do it, but I then said I was going to do it, and then you just gave it away. To some other bimbo, probably killed her husband. <laughs> Did it on purpose. Yeah, just wanted that job as a monument keeper. I just imagine Laura just, like, spreading all the rumors about this woman. It's like, did you hear she killed him herself? It's like, Laura, (laughs) jeez. We're at the funeral. Let it go. (laughs) So, in 1828, Laura and James's daughter, Apollonia, died of typhus. (laughs) I hate that her name is Apollonia. Like, I hate that. It's just so bizarre. It's just like, unless Apollonia was like a normal name at some point, but I just imagine like, yeah, that's their diamond child. However, gonna turn that year around because later in the year, James finally found some work and he was appointed registrar of Niagara Surrogate Court. So daughter dies, but gets a job. You know, it's a mixed year. He was, he was eventually promoted to judge in 1833, and their son Charles was able to take over the registrar position. So when oh, he leaves excellent. his old job, his son just immediately gets put into that position. Okay, so they're doing well right now. They're doing okay. James took up another position as customs collector in 1835 at the port of Chippewa. The position came with a house, so Laura, him, and a few of their children moved while Charles took over the Queenston home. So things are on the up in the 1830s, but then in 1841, James suffered from a stroke and died. Oh, shit. After James's death, Laura was left destitute. When his war pension ended, she was unable to keep her land profitable and was forced to sell most of it off. She petitioned to have her son take over James's former position as the customs collector, which was denied. Which, I guess I will say, like, 
being a widow during this period of time is a really, really difficult situation to be in because it's really unlikely that you personally will find work. And unlike now where there are protections for widows that would at least give them like the pension that their husband would have received, Laura's not guaranteed any of those things, which again is why I find her such an interesting figure is that she's not protected as a hero or anything she's not shielded from the hardships of a normal person like what she goes through is really common like a lot of women face these issues during the 1800s and it's why you have a string of reform laws at the end of the 1800s to try and protect women from these things so possibly with the help of some of her better off family members laura was able to purchase and move into a small red brick house in november of 1841 the fa- i like that that was a key detail <laughs> the a architecture small red brick <laughs> house yeah. yeah beautiful quaint the following spring her daughter harriet moved in with her along with her two daughters when harriet's husband died of alcohol poisoning oh my god so that's the other thing is like the family is kind of in a rough situation because they had so many daughters. They don't have that many sons, which would be another issue because the daughters have to try and get married and marry well to support themselves. But then, I mean, case in point... They end up being alcoholics. One of one of them dies of alcohol poisoning. Another one got sick and died. So again, those daughters are back in the family circle and trying to support themselves within the family. Like, it's really, it's a really tough time to be a woman. (laughs) Preach. Preach. Welcome to history. Welcome to history. Um, So the three of them, so Harriet and her two daughters, would live with Laura for the rest of Laura's life. Laura's youngest daughter, Hannah, also moved into the family with her two daughters when her husband died in 1844. Oh my god, what luck. Yeah, it's just not good. Like, it's not great. (laughs) Laura- There wasn't even a war. Like, it wasn't like they were dying because they were at war. No, it's just like, life is hard. They were just dying. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, this is more just me guessing, but like, like I said at the top of the episode- men tend to be a bit older when they marry mm-hmm, than, mm-hmm. than the women that they marry. And so, and men tend to not live as long as women just generally. So the likelihood that you would outlive your husband if you didn't die in childbirth is pretty high. <laughs> That's crazy. I think we've had at least five spouse deaths. <laughs> in this episode, in this episode alone. Because her, her yeah. two daughters, her own husband, and then her dad had two wives that died. Yeah. Someone yeah. keep a counter. Someone keep a tick mark for every time <laughs> a, tally. a spouse dies. Let us know. When Let you listen know. to this episode and you count how many their spousal deaths there are, just deaths in general, just let us know. <laughs> I would love would to ya? see the, like, um, like stats for our podcast, like how many spouses die in the podcast. <laughs> this one, it could be a drinking game for this episode. <laughs> yeah. Drink every time someone dies. Ugh. Although Laura did not have a formal education, for a short period of time, she ran a small school out of the house in an effort to support herself. So you don't need an education to be a teacher, as we previously discussed in our rural teacher episode. Those were the days. Yeah, being a teacher is a vibe. It's it's just an essence. And as long as you... It's a vibe. It's a vibe. You know, it's like you really have a teacher's vibe. I think I, think I trust my small children with you. 
the the small schoolhouse came to an end after the public common school system was introduced in the 1840s, though. So she only runs the school for a very short period of time. Over the years, the Secords unsuccessfully petitioned the government for some kind of acknowledgement. Um, so Laura is trying to get awarded or rewarded for the information she delivered to Fitzgibbons. In 1860, when Laura was 85, the Prince of Wales heard of her story while traveling through Canada. So her story is starting to gain a little bit of popularity near the end of her life. So at Chippewa, near Niagara Falls, uh, the Prince of Wales learned of Laura Secord's plight as an aging widow and sent an award of 100 pounds. So it's like, it's nice. It's not That's that okay. much, though. I mean... After, like, decades of, like, living yeah. in poverty. Turmoil and... Yeah. yeah it's, it's not like, terrible. Eh, he's 100 pounds. And you know he felt great about it. He's like, man, I did such a Super good thing good. today. <laughs> Pat yourself on the back there, bud. <laughs> exactly. You did it. It was the only official recognition that she would ever receive for wow. her walk during her lifetime. Um, yeah. Laura Secord died in 1868 at the age of 93. Ooh, lived a good life there, Laura. She lived to be really old, yeah. And Even like, with, oh, that's old for today. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it happens every once in a while, but like, man, that's like a <laughs> Someone long- Someone makes it. It's like, it's a long time to be poor. Like, it just makes me sad more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the question then kind of becomes like, how do we know about Laura Secord? Like, if she lived in poverty for most of her life and she really she only ever received one official recognition for what she did, like, why is she so famous? Um, right. And also, like, admittedly, not that what she did was not important, but it's not super significant to the history of Canada. Like, you could tell the story of Canada without mentioning Laura Secord. So, yes, you probably could. Yeah. <laughs> so why do we remember her? A lot of Laura's celebrity came about after her death because of two popular movements. So one of them is the Confederation of Canada. And so when you're a young nation, you're a young country, you're trying to build some kind of national identity. And part of doing that is to create national heroes. So this is... Oh, so they thought of Laura right off the bat. I like that. Yeah, so part of that is sentimental. It's also tactical to build a national identity because you're trying to push off American encroachment. So American nationalism is expanding and there's a lot of fear that Canada, after they leave the British Empire, is just going to get enveloped into the American nation, which they don't want. So... Laura's image became emblematic of like the courage and endurance and resolution of pioneer life. Her story was comparable to that of American hero Paul Revere, who became famous. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so in some ways she's like the Canadian Paul Revere or Paul Revere's the American Laura Secord. Uh, <laughs> and even better was that her story was a British victory over the Americans. So not only is she like embodying things that all Canadians should want to embody, she's doing it in the name of being like British and not American. The other movement we can credit for the memory of Laura Secord was the first wave of feminism. So during mm. the 1880s, upper-class women sought to strengthen emotional ties between Canadian women and the British Empire. Historian Cecilia Morgan argued that they needed a female heroine to validate the claims for women's suffrage. 
1887, feminist writer Sarah Ann Curzon wrote a play called Laura Secord, The Heroine of 1812, which spurred dozens of articles and entries on Laura's contribution to the War of 1812, and she began to show up in Canadian histories and school books. So, Yay! Yeah, like, first wave feminists were like, we need some female Canadian heroes. Laura Secord was one of the ones that they picked, and so she wound up in a bunch of stuff. <laughs> So she actually wound up in all of these school books and stuff, despite the fact that most critics didn't like the play. People were like, this play sucks. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> but it worked. Uh, another feminist responsible for the popularity of Laura was Emma Curry. She tracked down information from Laura's relatives as far away as Massachusetts. And then she published a biography about Laura in 1900 called The Story of Laura Secord. Nice. She also successfully petitioned to have a memorial for Laura Secord erected at Queenston Heights. So you go from her being like a widow who died in poverty to in 1905, Laura's portrait was hung in parliament. That's crazy. And so... Now, did her family get to see any of this? Like her daughters? It, yeah, I mean, like she still has living relatives and a lot of the accounts about Laura come from those relatives. So it, okay. like, for example, one of the really famous examples is she tells the story to her granddaughter. And then after Laura's death, the granddaughter retells the story. So that's the one where like she overheard soldiers uh, talking in her house that they were billeting. And like, that's how she finds out about the American attack and all of that. But you got to like, feel like some of this recognition is so hollow. Like, the woman died in like almost poverty and then you decide to celebrate her later. And it's also like, because she's famous for one thing, it's almost, it, it's harder to uh, defame it in some ways. Like, you know, you can look at the career of Sir John A. Macdonald and you can criticize it so much because he's so involved in the development of Canada. And there's a lot of bad stuff that you do when you build the country. But Laura, she did like one thing. And it was good. And so and the rest she's of her really life, easy to celebrate that yeah. way. And the rest of her life was not so good. Not so sad. Yeah. Um, but like you brought up earlier, why do people really know Laura Secord? Chocolate. Chocolate. Exactly. And the ice cream and the cones with the dipped sides. I've never actually been to a Laura Secord store, I think. I think I've had the chocolate. Oh, it's good. <laughs> it's good. The chocolate really has nothing to do with her. Uh, it's really yeah that's what I've heard like that's just basically marketing. everyone's just like like anytime I've ever asked like as a child oh did Laura Secord <laughs> make the chocolate my mom was like no no <laughs> she's in a heritage minute go watch it <laughs> go learn a thing or two and then come back to me <laughs> so on the centennial of Laura's walk to Fitzgibbons in 1913 Frank O'Connor, a prominent businessman and politician, decided to capitalize on the surge of patriotic feeling around Laura Secord and founded Laura Secord's Chocolates. Oh. The first location opened on Young and Elm Street in Toronto. The chocolates were packaged in black boxes and then adorned with a portrait of Laura. Like a cameo portrait. Yes. Yeah. With like the side of the face. Exactly. With no color. Yeah. It's just like a silhouette almost. Yeah. By the 1970s, Laura Secord Chocolates was the largest candy retailer in Canada, 
And according to Inspiring Women, A Celebration of Canadian Lives, a book by Mona Holman and Gail Youngberg, most Canadians know Laura Secor because of the chocolate company and not because of what she did during the War of 1812. Yeah, which is one part that I really think the Heritage Minutes got right. Oh, absolutely. Because it is important that people know that story of what really happened, especially as a, as a woman in Canadian history. Uh, that's that's pretty important. So I'm really glad that they did make a minute about it. Yeah, definitely. And it's like, it, it's so bizarre to me that you would just kind of be like, that, that's just like saying like, I'm going to go make Wilfrid Laurier chocolates. <laughs> just yep. like you can pick anybody. You could just pick a person and make a brand all about them. And it is a thing that like really has nothing to do with her. I don't know. i make... I'm going to make Sir Charles Tupper um, <laughs> gummy candies <laughs> and sell them with I'll, a picture of his face on will them. Will it be like a little him, like a little gummy yeah. bear, but it's a little Sir Charles Tupper? <laughs> yes, exactly, with a top hat. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm here for it. Good. So in 2003, Laura was made a person of national significance, which is a dedication in Canada. Wow. Uh, and in 2006, she was selected to be one of 14 statues dedicated at the Valiance Memorial in Ottawa. So those are like 14 busts or statues. Yeah. Of, and she is. She is there. Yeah. Like they. I've seen that. They, I think it's like it's, it's all war memorials but like they pick 14 people yeah. that were significant to different canadian wars or different eras in canadian military history um so she's one of them for the war of 1812 you know who joins her at that memorial though who governor frontenac of course <laughs> what a boob what a boob but yeah that's the story of lower c card it really has nothing to do with chocolate but that's why we know her <laughs> Well, she seems like a lovely lady, what I know about her. Yeah. She seems like she tried her very hardest and just wanted to do what was right. So good for Laura. Yeah, she had her one kind of iconic moment, and then she just tried to live her life and tried to get some kind of recognition for it, but never could. Without lamezing herself. Without so. lamezing herself. I liked that. I'm Good. like, it's kind of sad because it wasn't so great for her, but I'm glad that um, Canada, especially the government of Canada, has taken taken her story and done something about it and made sure that people are aware of it and know that it happened. Yeah, and I I mean, we, you don't get many Canadian figures, sorry, female figures in military yeah. history generally. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's nice to have that perspective. And also, like I said, it, it's so hard to find cohesive, fully developed stories of regular people in history, because ultimately that's the experience of the vast majority of, majority of people. And we tend to focus on people that did extraordinary things, which is great. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't, like, if you take the life of Governor Frontenac, for example, you know, he's not the average Frenchman. He's living far more extravagantly than most people would be able to. Right. So. Right. And, and what you were saying about, you know, there's certain people who don't need a heritage minute. Like, I would have <laughs> still known who John A. MacDonald was and things that he's famous for yeah. if he hadn't had a heritage minute, you know? Yeah. 
but people like Laura Secord, like that's that's her story, and that's how we know about her as Canadians. Definitely, and especially when people most people know her because of a chocolate company. Exactly. That exactly. doesn't do a great job of conveying why we talk about her. So I I like this Heritage Minute. I like it. It's melodramatic. I think it's there for a good reason, and I think it tells the story pretty accurately. So I think ten out of too. ten. <laughs> 10 out of 10. We're not reviewing well, the minutes, but this no, one's a 10 out of but 10. 10 out of 10. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I liked that one. Good. That was good. I feel like, I feel like I've learned something today. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to go follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast and the same handle for Facebook. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at The Minute Women. Yeah, thanks so much for listening today, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.